Before we start today's episode, a little disclaimer for our listeners. This episode of the Always Andersonville podcast covers aspects of sexual health and wellness that parents may find unsuitable for children. Discretion is advised. Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Charlie. This is the third episode in our series for our Say Hey campaign for January Health and Wellness Month. In each episode, we'll talk with local experts on different aspects of health and wellness, correct some common misconceptions, and offer some insight and resources for achieving your own state of wellness in the new year. Today, I am joined by Sarah Dysack and Heather Corinna. Sarah is a queer sex educator and owner of Early to Bed and Trans Essentials, Chicago's first woman-owned sex shop. She lectures to community groups and colleges around the state on topics relating to masturbation, sex toys, and positive sexuality. Heather Corinna is a dedicated award-winning queer feminist activist, author, and educator. They're the founder and co-director of the web clearinghouse organization Scarleteen. They've written a number of books on sexuality for people of all ages, including Sex, The All-You-Need-To-Know Sexuality Guide to Get You Through Your Teens and Twenties, and What Fresh Hell Is This? Perimenopause, Menopause, Other Indignities, and You. Heather is also the sexuality chair at Our Bodies, Ourselves Today. Sarah, Heather... Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I love when that happens. Thanks, I love when that happens. It might happen more. Yeah. Than. Every every time, uh, whenever I have more than two people, if I have three people on here, if they can get it in chorus or canon, yeah. I always tell them to leave it in. So, you know, I'm very glad to have you here. I have a ton of questions, of course, but I always like to start by having my guests give a little background on themselves uh, beyond the intro and in particular, the topics we'll be discussing today. So, Sarah, why don't we have you start? Oh, um, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, there's not that much that's pertinent to this that I want to add, but I am you know, I'm a lifelong, I grew up in Evanston. I've been in Chicago my whole adult life. I really started my business because I was a very frustrated sex toy consumer. There was no place in Chicago that I felt like was supportive to particularly at the time women's sexuality, but queer women's sexuality and This is before we even started talking a lot about gender and a lot of the evolution of the business and our work with trans people, as well as some of the other work that we do in the community has all just been the sort of natural evolution of my passion for sharing this information and what the community and the city and the people around me have asked for or let me know they need. So I'm really excited to hear to talk to y'all today about this stuff because it is something that I am very passionate about. So Sarah, thank you very much, Heather. Can we hear a little about you? Sure. Uh, I'm from here. I'm a I'm a Chicagoan um, by birth, but I was gone for about 20 years. I came back five or five years ago. Now I guess just almost in time for lockdown. <laughs> that's 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 great. Like Sarah, I've been in education almost my whole life. I've been teaching for over 30 years. I've kind of done the whole age spectrum. You know, I've been an early childhood educator, I've educated adults, and then you know, most of my day is spent with young people. So I've definitely kind of done this work across the entire age spectrum. You know, in terms of kind of aging and menopause and everything else, you know, I'm 53. <laughs> I'm thankfully now on the other side of menopause. Thank God. This is, and, and everyone lived through it, which is the real <laughs> miracle. Um <laughs> 
Do you want to give me a little info? So I talked a little bit about some of the organizations that you run. Um, is it Scarlet Team and Our Bodies, Ourselves Today? Just sure. a, a little more info yeah, about yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So Scarlet Team was pretty much the first comprehensive sex ed website on the internet. We launched that in 1998. We just mm. turned 25, which is both like I have the wrinkles on my face for exactly 25 years of <laughs> grassroots nonprofit work, but it is also still sometimes too like, what? You know, it's it's as inclusive as we can make it. It's highly international. We kind of run, even if something seems only tangentially related to sex and sexuality, we probably talk about it and it's probably in there. But we're just, we're just about to kind of read up and redo the the site for maybe, I don't know, the fourth time and if it's life and every time it grows exponentially. So every time it is an exponentially larger lift, mm -hmm. but, um, those tangential things add up, right? Well, and we just like, we just did the math for our 25th and we've served 90 million people 90 in million. 25 years, wow. right? Which is one of the Amazing. reasons why like on dating apps, I don't date anyone under 35. <laughs> the <laughs> likelihood that I was them. their sex yeah. educator is really high. And it's just, it's too, I'm like, <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's other reasons for the not under 35s too. But yeah, I don't is, date anyone under 35 myself. That, right. Too. I mean, that's, I wasn't their sex educators, but <laughs> We're not here to age bash. Right. But, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then um, Our Bodies Ourselves Today is kind of a newer incarnation of the work that the Boston Women's Health Collective did in making the book versions of Our Bodies Ourselves, which they stopped making. And then Our Bodies Ourselves Today is kind of the, you know, modern web variant of that. It is community curated. We have a chair for each section, and then we have a kind of team of content experts for each section. So we're, we're kind of scouring the internet to look for the best information that's the most relevant to people looking for it and peer reviewing it and everything else. So that, and that's new. It's just um, been around about two years now. Well, and you know, I was looking uh, over the website and I encourage people to look at it because one of the things that was so astounding about it was how many different topics and subjects there are and all the experts that you have for each one. You look at nonprofit sites and they have, they might have their, their topic on, you know, this one thing or that one thing. There's dozens of topics that yeah. you have experts on that you know you would see other places lump into one large category it's true i mean some of that is i gotta work i'm, so, I'm like so i will be humbled by this for the rest of my life i gotta work on the last book version of our bodies ourselves and the back end google documents were the most mind-boggling amazing deeply organized things I've ever seen in my whole mm. life. And some of it is just, you know, look, the Boston Women's Health Collective, I mean, I mean, like they literally wrote the book on making books with giant numbers of people, right? In order to like really have things yeah. be community sourced and really have things be diverse. And when you do that, you do get a diverse array of topics because you don't have one person trying to universalize everything, right? And so certainly that you know, that inherited set of skills is kind of the legacy of our bodies ourselves. And so for sure, it, it shows up in the website as well. It's yeah. anything that anybody having to do with our bodies ourselves, 
ever asked me to do, the answer is always yes. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, I don't, I don't care what it is. I will drop everything and do it anytime because they're amazing. Well, you know, and I, I mentioned, I'm especially excited to speak with you both because, you know, uh, we talked about this a little bit before recording, but in the new year, we always hear a lot about taking control of our health and our wellness and our journeys. And, but I've realized that sexual health and aging specifically are subjects that tend to be excluded from these evaluations in the mainstream. And then if I I want to add one more thing, just some, based on uh, Heather, you're talking about Scarlet Teen, but you're talking about this being uh, launched in 1998. And at least, you know, I'm I'm 33. I didn't really have sex ed. I had a day where our guidance counselors, they separated the boys and the girls and our guidance counselor gave us some basic information that I don't remember what it was. And I... I had no guide. I, there, I think there's a period of time where we really didn't have anything available in the oh, public school system. It hasn't system. changed. It, like the maybe one day is maybe two weeks. And it depends on the public school system, right? And you have to have been in attendance. And it also depends on your teacher. I mean, yeah, we had that's an issue true. with someone at my kid's school who just decided not to teach the curriculum right. because it didn't like it. Well, that's the thing, and right? Like, Even as great as the curriculum is, well, how the curriculum is used is largely up to interpretation from the teacher. And almost nobody in school systems wants to do the sex ed. Exactly. So mm -hmm. it's not like people are doing quality control right. on what's happening. Quality control is when parents complain, mm -hmm. right? Now, see, in your case, it's probably a very different kind of complaint yes. than they're used to getting. Because <laughs> usually the complaint is you were too explicit right. or you talked about queer sex or like whatever. It's not probably this wasn't inclusive or the way that you talked about right. someone was actually offensive and not acceptable. But it really hasn't changed. And I think that's one of the things where we heard for a long time at Scarlettina, we're international, right? So bear that in mind too, is that still in the whole world, while there are some tiny pockets, you know, like it's sex ed paradise in Holland, you know, like there's a <laughs> couple very small places, pretty much every young person in the whole world, if they're relying on school for sex ed is getting little to no sex ed. So we would have people be like, well, as soon as we have it in schools, we don't need you anymore. Right. But I, uh, that's just never going to be, no. it's not, and, and it's also one of these things where I think that, especially when you're talking about things like mental health, people forget that these are very personal, very sensitive topics. And the way the social environment of American public schools is really toxic. Nobody's doing classes for kids and young people on how to treat each other with kindness and sensitivity when they're talking about things like this, right? So even when you have somebody there, the likelihood of people actually asking questions that they really want to ask, nobody feels safe no. to ask them. Or even when you're a great teacher and you're trying to engage a group of students in a conversation, often people have just come from outside, right? So they met that person before. Mm -hmm. They're not, you could try, you know, and I've been that outside person sometimes. You can try as hard as you want, but you're like, they just met me. And now I'm asking them to talk about the thing that they have no practice talking with anyone about it and that everyone is terrified to right. talk and about. And generally in a group of your classmates, too. Oh, I mean, we had, that's we what had I mean. 32 it's kids in my class. The social stakes could not be higher, mm -hmm. right? Like, so even when you, even the questions that are sometimes asked in those kinds of environments, you have to know that they're usually the safest questions to ask mm -hmm. um, or they're very performative because also, you know, 
high school kids aren't stupid. They know that maybe there's a question that they could ask that makes them look good. They're not going to ask right, the question right. that makes them look bad. Right, right. So I'm stepping back a little bit. You know, I talked about how sexual health tends to get and aging tend to be left out of these evals in the mainstream. And I'm curious as the experts why you think that is, you know, also noting that, you know, a big part of this health campaign we're doing is to bust some myths and misconceptions about these uh, about all aspects of our health. But especially for this one, which, again, seems left out. And I, I, I'm curious why you think that is. Oh, patriarchy, misogyny, and a fear of sex. <laughs> I mean, I think... Don't forget ageism. And ageism. Well, for sure, ageism. Yeah, right. And it's when you're the talking perfect about, storm. Yeah, right? right. Like, it's this disposalness, <laughs> disposability of aging when you're talking about people who, you know, are assigned female at birth. Disposableness of them because they're no longer sexually, you know, considered viable or desirable i think there's just this desire is a we, are, we have a prudish culture we don't want to talk about sex i mean it's amazing this is a little tangential to that but just the nature of my business because i sell devices of pleasure we don't have access to the same credit card processing the same insurance we get you know we can't access any sort of sba loan or grants or any of those things are just like cut off from that and so and, and it's purely based on the fact that people don't want their name associated or be associated with anything that has to do with sex or sexuality which is just seems like so old-fashioned at this point yeah but i also think there's so much in there culturally about not wanting to acknowledge that people who are assigned female at birth can still be sexually active when they've Approaching menopause, in menopause, through menopause, you know, I'm not always so great with the words on these things where we are. But yeah, and just in general, I mean, you could go back to the idea of even giving people who are assigned female at birth power over their own sexuality, which is abhorrent to so many people as we see over and over again. So it's like a great... I wouldn't call it, it's not even a trifecta. It's, I don't know what a four thing is, but mm-hmm. it's everything, right? Perfect storm. I think. Conglomeration. Yeah. Conglomeration. Amal- amalgam. All the ways we hate things. Yeah. I mean, and are afraid of things. Right. Terrified. Right. Like people are very, very afraid to f- face aging, right? Like their own aging. Somebody else is aging. They don't really want to talk about it. Everybody wants to pretend it isn't happening. Not everybody, you know, some of us are better about this <laughs> right. than other people. But culturally, our cultural everybody. Well, I mean, capitalism certainly wants to pretend it isn't happening and wants everyone to pretend it isn't happening. But the same is true with sex, right? People are really afraid to talk about it. And the thing about it is that often what that means, though, is those fears kind of wind up being self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Like it's that most of the stuff that people are afraid of is only real if they make it real and they enact it in that way. Like you only have to get older and have a non-existent or terrible sex life if that is what you choose to do. But if you believe that that's what it is, chances are you've probably constructed your life in such a way that that's going to happen. And I think the same is true with people's sex lives, right? When you're talking, especially when you're talking about not talking about it. Well, no kidding. If you don't ever talk about it, it's not going to be so great. And it might even be quite scary because we do have to do things like talk to each other for consent to be something real, for yeah. instance. And probably especially for queer uh, the queer community too, growing up not having not only not having resources, but I didn't have any sort of exposure to 
you know, uh, gay or queer, you know, sexuality until I got to college and I was in theater school. Uh, well, that's one place to go for it. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I lucked out. I was in an arts high school. So all of the all of the weird saucy queers, we were like the weird island of misfit yeah. toys. <laughs> yeah. And I was our sex educator. But for the record... I'm I'm sure that I was not very good at it. Oh, like, I'm, I'm really... sure you were perfect when oh, you were 17. I don't know. Had access to <laughs> one old copy of to the Joy of Sex. I or don't something. feel great about it. Well, there, that there's no time to waste <laughs> worrying about that. You you've oh, you've I've done for it. so much to help everybody with their sex and sexuality. Yeah, I think that's yeah. <laughs> okay. But I think you're right too. Like I think you have. Teens who don't get, or children or whatever, mm-hmm. who don't get sex education, they grow up to be adults. They have sex with people who haven't gotten sex education. Mm-hmm. So no one is getting this kind of education. And then they become older people who have no sex education. And if they, and I think we rely, especially those of us as I'm female at birth, rely culturally so much on external forces to validate our sexuality, to let us know how our sexuality is Faring, to, you're rejected by people, therefore your sexuality is invalid. And I think that, mm-hmm. especially in our culture that hates older women in particular, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's really just you are digging, we're digging out of this really, really, really deep hole. And it's like for every little step we make forward, then I feel like there's a little bit of a step back, especially when it comes to aging. I mean, we're looking at a time now where it's insane to think that anybody would still have wrinkles because you can get rid of those. No problem. Why would you put yourself through the pain of looking your actual age? (laughs) Like not doing things feels radical. Whereas these things used to be more. No, and then they judge you when they see that you've done things too. Right, right. No, you can't win. That's for sure. Um, But at least you've tried. Right. (laughs) It's no, it's very true. I mean, I thought we used to, you know, talk to a lot of folks at Simon Field Birth about, their anatomy, you know, like you're talking to a 50 year old woman about where her body parts are. And you're like, wow, I can't believe we're having this conversation, but okay, great. We're here for it, whatever. And then I was like, you know what? By a couple of years, we're going to be done with this. Everyone's going to know everything. People will stop telling women that their bodies are wrong because they don't react the same way that they're the last female partner someone had did or whatever. And it is 2023 and we're still answering the same. We're still reassuring people over and over again that that what their sex and sexuality is, is normal. What their bodies do is normal. It might not be what someone else's body does, but it's all in a spectrum of normalcy. And I think that's, I'm glad we're still around to do that. And I'm glad that keeps our business thriving, but it's sad to me that we haven't progressed further along the more access to information people have. Yeah. Uh, We find that even like, you know, we, every couple of years, we kind of do a full content review of what's at Scarletine. And I'm always prepared with the earliest stuff Mm -hmm. to be like, probably we don't need need this anymore. And then I'll both look at it and I'll look at how many people have read it. And I'll be like, oh my God. Like, and sometimes, you know, I mean, we try and make things evergreen. So there are some things that people will always want to know, but you do just kind of hope that the, the entry level point for this information rises a little bit and it, it is a little, but it's so little right. over, over such a long period of time. And that even with there being information out right. there, yeah. that is so much easier to access, but that information is also still having to go through the 
filter yeah. of everything else that somebody is soaking in. Well, and there's garbage information out there that's, too, that's, right? I like, was thinking you plug the first thing you think of into Google, you're not necessarily getting a, a valid you know, no, source. No, you're no. getting porn usually. Well, and then a lot of something that we've been noticing a lot on Scarletine is because so many people are leaning to short video mm. bits, right? To like TikTok, TikTok or and, Instagram. Yeah. It's one, you know, I mean, as an educator, I know that if you have if you have information is supposed to be going in, but then a bunch of stuff is happening visually, that already the likelihood of you learning it is not good. Oh, because you're being distracted. Is it right? Especially when you you know there's a performative nature to these videos. It's not like they're showing you like a pastoral scene. Right. They're like doing that thing where they're <laughs> jumping in your face and there's hands. Fifteen and then seconds later, you know, they go to the next things, one. Yeah. Right, and then so you're like trying to watch this one thing and then this is there and there's not always transcripts but also too everything has to be made so truncated Mm -hmm. that we're having more people now come back to us with this kind of like we were just talking about this this week this kind of everything is universal right this idea that it's like well if this doesn't work for you this will because that's the only you have 30 seconds to say a thing so only in those and then we'll have to be like no right that's not it's the most personal topic you know that's not a thing but also there's no universal i mean that's just that's the that's always the answer every time is it the question is anything of again is it normal everything's normal Right. Like, I mean, like everything's normal because there's no universal. We know. I like that you just commented about where to start or that first question, because I know, um, you know, from our conversations before recording, we're planning on covering a lot on aging and menopause. But I'd love to chat a little bit with you about your work with younger generations as well, because I think there are. You know, we already talked a little bit about how there wasn't, there isn't really sex ed for, you know, even middle and high schoolers to a good degree. But I think there are a lot of parents out there that have difficulty figuring out how to talk to their kids about sexual health as they come into their adolescence or through their adolescence. And in particular, parents with gender nonconforming and or trans children, you know, it's, it, it's something that if they haven't been exposed to before, even less of an idea of how to approach it. So I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about your work with younger generations and with queer kids and perhaps provide some insight for parents when approaching these subjects for their ki- with their kids. Sure. I'm going to say a thing that is usually said by a very different person than me for a very different reason. I actually think that parents are much better sex educators for their kids than schools. And it's the thing that we were talking about with schools. It's just, it's socially really toxic in most schools. There are some schools where there's an exception and there's some classrooms where like it's a, the microcosm of the classroom has a nice protective factor for the rest of the school. But the thing is also too, is that in most schools, Teachers don't follow their students year to year. They're meeting them for the first time, right? They're having to get to know and meet and manage 30 different kids at one time. Parent, a guardian, anybody raising a kid, on the other hand, has known that kid the whole time, right? You know everything about them. There's like literally, except for the thoughts they haven't shared with you, there's nothing that parents don't know about them. Parents also have the ability to be doing this from when they were diapering their kids, like absolutely every step of the way. So you don't have the thing where all of a sudden someone's in the situation where they're trying to have one talk or do all the sex ed in one day, which I mean, first of all, even if you could, 
who could absorb that information and retain it, right? That's just, that's bonkers. That's like that scene in A Clockwork Orange, right? Where they're like downloading oh all this information, right? Like it's just, it's, it's, it's not. But one of the things is I think that what you were talking about earlier, Sarah, which is that a lot of people who are parents haven't had good sex ed. So one, you ha- you start from the way that sex educators start, which is that we don't assume that we know anything based on our own sex lives. Like maybe that gives a little color or a little flavor, fleshes out some of the broader things we know, but it's a job for which we do work. You Like just everybody, everybody who has sex can't be a good sex educator. So some of it is, is that, you know, something like scarletine can be a parent resource as much as it is a resource for kids. So your kids are asking you these questions. Great. Go look up some stuff. Maybe even sit with them, show them how to look up some stuff and have these conversations as they happen. And I think some of it too, is there's a lot of, it's what we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of fear around talking about sex. And I think a lot of parents don't trust themselves to have these conversations and they should, right? And if you I think if you think about it, you know, the same way that you would come to your kid talking to them about things to do with their heart, right? So things like, you know, when kids' friends don't invite them to a party or when you're explaining to a kid how they weren't nice to somebody or what Mm -hmm. to do. Teaching them empathy. Right, and you're doing it with great care and caution, but you're trusting yourself. I think that same, you know, I don't know, your sexuality is a different kind of heart. Like I think, and your body and everything else, I think that if if you trust yourself with other kinds of parenting, I think it's one of these things where when it's that you don't know enough, great, cool, go get some information. But I think if you can parent with other things, including things like that, heart things, sibling things, you like parents can do this. They can. And I, I, I think that a lot of times they choose not to. I mean, that we're having like a backlash against socio-emotional learning in schools is it's just bananas. absolutely bonkers. But also I think what's interesting about sex too is that to have a good, healthy partner sex life in particular is to be able to have communication with your partner. And I, one of the things that we see all the time is that that piece is missing, right? And so you have an adult who doesn't have the practice of talking about their own sexuality, their own sex life with their partner. And then I think to talk about it to a child or to their kid is terrifying because they don't, because you'll sure. you have a fight with your partner about something. You'll work through an emotional discussion or, so, or your friends or whatever it is. But then often when it comes to sex, it's just like people shut down. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I love the idea of leaving, of, of letting parents lead the sex education. And I wish that more parents would reach out for resources on that because I feel like there's parents who want to do it, but they don't mm-hmm. have that background mm-hmm. or that, comfort i mean why and it would benefit them in their own lives that's the other thing right that i'm like you know like i when i was teaching early childhood ed you know i'm terrible at math but when i was trained in on doing montessori math i was learning math with three-year-olds and i'll tell you something the stakes are low (laughs) three-year-olds don't care that you don't know shit right you know like they don't like the stakes are really low so learn to talk about it with Mm -hmm. your three-year-old how great and then it can also benefit you there and like i said they're not they're not going to be as critical as your (laughs) right (laughs) they're an easy audience not to mention it's it's your you know you're not going to talk to your kid about your own sex life and so you're removing that level but i just feel like we all need more training and practice and practice and talking to our you know i think people talk people talk to their friends more about their own sex lives and issues and if we were able to have these discussions publicly more if we weren't shut off from you know if it wasn't such a prudish society that made it so hard to talk about and it's changing it's evolving i mean there's certainly a lot more discussions about sex than there have been in the past 
fast, but I think that yeah, getting comfortable with yourself is the number one Agree. way to do that. As you know, we're talking about resources. Even I love that you said parents can go on Scarlet Teen and, and look at, they should, they should look at what their kids are reading anyway. But for parents of queer, gender, non-conforming kids, because, you know, I think one of the things we've seen is kids are becoming more comfortable coming out earlier and earlier in life. And I mean, I know a few people just from my own life who have had parents who have had kids come out and then not really know how to approach a sexual situation. So, I mean, one of the things that I guess I'd love to hear from you is, you know, your thoughts on that, but also resources, good resources for these parents, because sometimes you re- you might find a good resource on talking with about sex with your kid, but it doesn't necessarily apply to your situation anymore. Sure. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of people that I want to talk about. Uh, there's a website called Sex Positive Parents. Melissa runs that site. She's amazing. It's like she's just, I don't know, she has a knack for writing parent resources and make them very digestible and resourceless and they're short. My colleague Karen Rain also, who just has a new book that's out called Sex Ed for the Stroller Set. She's written another two books for parents to have conversations with kids. And I, I also think Karen's stuff is just really, you know, she's a parent and she's a sex educator. It's very digestible and good to read. I mean, I think when you ask that kind of question, it's always curious for me because as a queer and gender non-conforming person, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around the idea that people think that because your kid or somebody else is different from you in this one way that like if they were the same, you would know the right things to say and that yeah. they're different, you don't. I mean, one, they could be the same maybe or you think they're the same and you still could absolutely not say the right things or kind of know what to say. I mean, I think all of these things are whoever your kid is. And even if it's not your kid, right? If it's somebody like me working with somebody, we're meeting them as the person that they are. They're going to be diverse in a bunch of different ways. And I mean, mostly what it is, is we learn how to be with children and young people, just like everybody else, by listening to them, by asking them how they want us to be with them, right? And just kind of learning each other as we're doing our relationship building. Again, I think parents have a really nice setup there because they are usually knowing their kid from very, very early on in life. They don't have some history that nobody knows. You know, when we meet somebody as adults, we come to each other and everything that came before and made us who we are is like, we don't know what that is. It's a mystery, you know, but you do know. So I think it's, again, I think it's one of those things where, some of that is letting go of the assumption that let's say you're a straight person and your kid was a straight person. If you thought that that meant that you knew how to do everything, you need to throw that away. Right. Because it doesn't mean that just like it doesn't mean because you're a straight cisgender person and your kid isn't that you know nothing. It doesn't mean that either. And so some of it, I think too, is also just that, that intimidation factor, right? You just kind of have to like, I don't know, take a positive risk and, and, and go in. And if you've built a relationship too, and maintain one with your kids in which it's safe for them to say things to you. Like, actually, I don't like the way that you said that, that really hurt my feelings, or you're assuming this thing about me because I'm a queer kid. And actually that's not true, mom. Let me explain it to you. If you've built that kind of relationship, again, it's a lot harder to take missteps and certainly not like intractable missteps. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that when a kid comes out as queer or trans, I think a lot of parents, a lot of parents are like, whoop, yay, you know, whatever. That's, 
you know, acknowledge that that's a, a valid and not uncommon reaction, <laughs> but that there's also lots of parents who, you know, are just like, oh, okay, now I have to totally change my idea of how to support my child and I'm going to mess this up. And so they start to get nervous about things. Mm-hmm. And I think that totally translates into how they might be talking to them about sex or sexuality. And I think part of this issue too, is that, right. If you, if you're starting with, without this knowledge that everybody is different and what most sex education needs to be sure to, to be communicating is communication and self-awareness, you know, like that's kind of the cornerstones. Then it doesn't matter if your kid is bi or trans or ace or whatever it mm-hmm. is, you have these building blocks that are going to be as close to universal as sex education can be. But I totally get that there's one thing that then trips up somebody who doesn't want to have this conversation to begin with. And the one thing they thought they had, which was a commonality is gone. Mm-hmm. It makes it harder. So, sure. but it, I think it is, you know, read a book, you know, watch some videos. There's a lot of ways to educate yourself really quickly mm-hmm. um, on how to bridge any gaps that you are probably creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I, you know, I always, uh, one of the things uh, I love to try and give our listeners that are, I know our parents is some resources on how they can approach these subjects themselves. So I appreciate that. And then why don't we move on to, you know, the big topic we discussed. You know, <laughs> well, one I know you're both very passionate about. And I, you know, when I first reached out to you both about doing this episode, I was really, because I mean, this is not a topic I'm familiar with at all. And this is, so this isn't even something that came to my mind to, to speak about. And when you sent me more information and we're, you know, saying we'd like to talk about this, I was thrilled because this is exactly one of those things where I have I have no knowledge of it. I'm sure a lot of people have no knowledge of it. And I this is the sort of thing that we want to address. We want to bring up. Heather, you know, you sent me a few talking points ahead of time. Sarah and Sarah had even commented when I reached out about doing this with you. Sarah says, uh, I would do anything with Heather. Uh, they literally wrote the book on Perry and menopause. I said I would do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I said they wrote it was, Yes, it was, the, it was the easiest podcast booking I've ever had. But, um, you know, Heather, you sent me a few talking points ahead of time. And you mentioned that talk about menopause and aging can be very scary. You know, Sarah, you commented on how little information and resources there are are for people to educate themselves. And Heather or Sarah, I apologize. I don't remember who exactly who sent me this quote, but I want to jump into this reading a quote you had sent me. I think Heather, you'd sent me this in the bio of of things you wanted to talk about. So if I may, I want to just read this from the email. When the subject is perimenopause or menopause, any talk of sex typically, typically assumes there are problems and is completely focused on vaginas and intercourse. This not only presents sex in a totally heteronormative way, it also presents it in a way where even before menopause, if this is all or the center of what's going on, people probably were already not having the greatest time ever. Surprise, surprise, just queering up the sex people are having and creating a sexual life that is much more whole body often makes a world of difference. Can you hear snaps? Yeah. Oh, thank you, snaps. <laughs> snaps are better than claps for, for audio for control. So yeah, please expand. Sure. Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, when I say that the talk about this is usually scary, I mean, there's there often seems to be a lot of fear factoring kind of involved of like, you know, preparing people for like, I mean, it's just what Sarah said early walking in. There's so much misogyny in this. The way if if people talked to people 
born with penises, the way that they talk to people born with vaginas about what would happen to their genitals mm. when they got over, therapists would be overrun <laughs> with cisgender men, right? Like, I mean, because like, I mean, it, I mean, literally it would be like me being like, and then you're going to get older and your penis is going to fall off in the street. Yeah. Right. Like, yep. I mean, there's just like, and you're going to have to take medicine for the rest of your life <laughs> to make <laughs> sure that your penis, I mean, just the, the focus on vaginal yes. atrophy and yes. lubrication as yes. though those are, that's all yes. someone born with that anatomy is. And like, this has never come up before. I mean, and look, some of it is, some of this talk is like also coming from actual people who, for instance, are doing things like it's somebody with the vagina that intercourse has always been the center of things and they've never used lubricant. Mm -hmm. So post-menopause, they are literally describing intercourse as feeling like razor blades inside their vagina. And of course they are. Probably it wasn't that far from that before then. But some of this is just, again, it's stuff where had things been different right up until this time, this person, for instance, probably would have never had that experience in the in the first chance, right? Because first of all, the structure of their sex life would be stuff that if something even hurt a little bit, they would be asking the other person to oh, stop, stop. Yeah. right? And then they would be like, let's take stock. What's going on here? What's missing in this picture? If again, things had been as they should have yeah. been before, they would have been like, oh, we forgot to use lube today. Mm -hmm. That's so silly of us. <laughs> or we didn't do anything else except just this. That never really feels that great. I mean, the so that when you know somebody like this that already had all these pieces and things like again communication that when something hurts you don't endure that it hurts and then go post about it on a message board you tell the other person involved to like stop or pause or whatever and make it not hurt anymore but somebody with all of the good stuff already when you have body changes with this it's a it's generally like a minor adjustment, right? You're having to like dial something up or add a little something, but all of the other pieces to make things are fine or there. But when you have people that haven't done any of those things and then this happens, then yeah, sure. It can feel earth shattering, especially because, you know, the older that we get, it is harder for us to change our habits and develop new habits. So if for instance, somebody has been, in a sexual life with someone else for 20 years, they've never communicated. They've never asked for accommodations for their body. They've never had it be normal that they can stop and pause and change things up or not do anything at all at any time. Then all of a sudden having to learn all of these things while your body is all changing and the world is telling you that you're basically all washed up anyway. So what are you even doing? You can understand why when people talk, it sounds very fearful because that sounds terrifying. Well, and it also reduces, you know, someone who's assigned female at birth sexuality to being a receptive partner. And if you don't have that, if you're not able to accommodate, yes. you know, you're just to be heteronormative of your man's sure. needs, sure. like then your what value you is right. gone. And I think... That is terrifying to people. And I think that when we, when we talk about sex as a more expansive thing, when, when I say sex, I don't mean putting the P in the right, V, right? right? When right, I say sex, right. I'm talking about touching bodies and touching yourself and all these things. Mm -hmm. And that is uncommon. That is uncommon that that's when people mean when they say sex. And we try constantly to educate people like, well, if that's not, if, you know, if you're, 
penis isn't staying hard or your vagina isn't feeling like it's wanting those things, there's, here's 3,000 other things you can do. Right. Don't ask me to name 3,000 other things. <laughs> but I can think of five. But yeah, and I think that if we had those building blocks, if we started when kids were younger and we didn't, mm-hmm. if we didn't use terms like virginity and, you know, it's this idea that there's one moment in time when you become a sexual individual and it has to involve this specific sex act. If we start there, I think then we could have yes. adults who have a wider right. understanding of how they can enjoy pleasure in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that is a lot of this problem and a lot yeah. of this fear. But it also goes, I mean, we just don't, like my mom, you know, when my mom went through menopause, it was like, no one in the family talked about it. She was mean for a couple of years and then we moved on, right? And that's Same. I wanted to have a conversation with my mom about her sex life or anything. Which I do if you want to, mom, we can talk. But um, <laughs> but at the time, right, like that wasn't necessarily what we needed to do. But it was just like this weird, scary thing where someone's kind of mean. And even, I, you know, I went, I've been trying to find a good health uh, healthcare provider. And I've been to a couple of doctors in the past couple of years. And I've brought up the topic of menopause. Both of them, younger women than me, have said, oh, there's really nothing to talk about. And I'm like, but I just asked you to talk there's about so it. Many things you could you could they never they never even said, do you have any symptoms? They're just like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just like, oh, thank you. Well, and it's also one of these things it, in healthcare, it's one of these things that is exactly like sex for so many years of doing this job. I would have people say, Well, you shouldn't be doing this job. You're not a doctor. Mm. And I would say, How much sex education yeah. do you think that doctors get in medical? school mm-hmm. is it zero yeah yeah john hopkins is still the longest at 10 days 10, ten day. days 10 days 10 days and the same is pretty much true i mean OBGYNs are still mostly obstetric right like it is still right. mostly a surgical practice when you go through a medical school but still it is not standard part of ob and certainly not primary care provider medical school to study perimenopause and menopause, right? So the likelihood of you, gosh, if you went to a doctor and you were saying both, I have questions about menopause and I have questions about sex. I mean, I, (laughs) you almost want to like film it just to see all the blank faces. We could make like a whole Wes Anderson film (laughs) of nothing, but like people staring back at you like, you know, like a deer in the headlights, because both of those things are things that like they're speaking so gibberish. Many, yeah. Or, or if, and this, when we, you have this happen too, it's a kind of the back to the parent thing where they're, what they're going to tell you is their own personal experience, right? So maybe if they know something, it's because they had sex with somebody, or maybe if they know it's something, it's because they've gone through <clears throat> menopause. And the only information then that you're going to get is whatever they needed and whatever they experienced, which is this relevant to you? Or Who how knows? does it relate to a drug? Right. I think that's yes, the thing too, that too, is that it's like, oh, well, what's the prescription that we can provide for that even when that's not often the absolutely needed yeah, absolutely. answer to a question, but it sure is easy. Yeah, I mean, I think that seems to be a normality and not that, you know, treatments or drugs can be effective for people with various issues that they're having, you of know, course. from all aspects of health. But, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about misconceptions when it comes to hormone therapies, Sure. Um, you know, how they can help, but also how they're misunderstood. And, you know, to, to start, I was hoping you could provide a little info on what hormone therapies are and what the intention behind them is. Sure. I mean, the nice thing is, is that it's gotten a lot easier culturally to talk about hormone therapy thanks to trans people mm-hmm. uh, and to trans healthcare. And in fact, more of that should translate into menopausal healthcare. It would be very beneficial for patients if it would. And it is slow going. I mean, it's interesting, you know, historically, 
with menopause, it, you know, when we say hormone therapy, we'll usually shorten and say HT. And with menopause, they'll call it HRT, mm-hmm. right? Which is hormone replacement therapy, which look, not everybody sits at the same place <laughs> with this as I do. But what hormone replacement therapy says, especially when we're saying it's estrogen, which is usually what that's about, is to say that there's a right level of estrogen for you to have. And if you have less than the right level, you need to get it back so that you're at your right level. When in fact, that's just all of our levels of, of so many hormones, not just sex hormones, right, are changing all the time in our bodies. They're constantly adaptive. Where they're at in relationship to each other is constant changing, right? And it's not just a life phase piece that some of it, it's just what's happening today. What are my cortisol levels Today, what are they going to be after I go to the dispensary down the block? I have an idea about this. I mean, even just the way you said that, the first thing that comes to mind is if someone said that, it's like, well, your body's intrinsically wrong. Well, you and, know? That's and, what it, and that's what Ben, I mean, look, hormone replacement therapy came to because the the way that menopause was talked about in kind of the mid 20th century here was absolutely, it was one of a femininity disease, Mm -hmm. right? That there is a, you need to have a certain amount of femininity and that menopause takes it away. Mm -hmm. Right. And the femininity is estrogen, right? Like, I mean, it's just this, this whole thing. It's a girly hormone. Well, and also too, I mean, respectfully, semi-respectfully, because also most of these guys were sexist assholes, but respectfully, everybody did not know then that everyone's bodies have estrogen and everyone's bodies have testosterone, right? There are no, these are not these hormones have been gendered, but they are not, they, they don't have gender, right? We, if they have gender, it's because we have put yeah. mm-hmm. gender on them. But it's, you know, when you look instead at a model for trans care, especially trans care that is non-binary, where you're not thinking about it as replacing something, you're thinking about it as hacking something to make mm-hmm. somebody feel better in ways that they want to feel better, whether that's how someone looks right? Whether that's how someone feels in their skin, even when we think about things like when you're talking about mental health, right? The medications that we use for anxiety and depression, we're trying, it's like, we're too depressed. So we're kind of trying to hack that to do that. But estrogen, estrogen is just one of the ways that people can supplement hormones to make themselves feel better. Everyone could potentially benefit from estrogen therapy. Everybody could potentially benefit from progesterone therapy. Everybody could potentially benefit from testosterone therapy. They do different things. They do different things in different amounts. They do different things in different people's bodies. And so, like I said, it's the way that kind of hormone therapy in menopause care has been, has been entirely estrogen focused. And in the UK, they're still like, they're even here, even though a lot of people that are in this are in fact also using testosterone for various things, for low energy, for feeling like they don't have as much sexual desire as they want to have before. Some people feel like kind of cognitive impacts of menopause, that testosterone is a good one for them. Even just kind of people who are starting doing uh, like weight training and things later to build bone mass will be like, oh, low dose T is kind of helpful to this. But there's a lot of like, oh, we haven't tested that. We don't know how that is on women, even though, yeah, we do. <laughs> because we have trans healthcare that has like all the data is is right there. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's changing. And I, it's also going to be one of these things where provider to provider, it's right. going to depend. I mean, quite frankly, if somebody is, 
saying, if somebody was coming to me and they said, I don't have a dedicated menopause provider, but what I'm looking for is to figure out the right kind of hormone therapy, I would be like, don't go to a menopause provider, go to a trans health provider, because they just have more practice with kind of knowing the whole array of what they have to work with and talking with people to really like trust someone's self-evaluation, right? Of saying, this is what I want for myself. This is what's bothering. Mm, I right. imagine people don't right? even like, think of that, like, you know. Well, I mean, look, in a lot of, I mean, in the American healthcare system, even that, even if you get five minutes to have that kind of any conversation right. with your doctor, it is very, very unusual. But again, this is one of, this is a different, this is, I mean, it's always interesting I mean, you operate, Sarah, as kind of an outsider in the world. I certainly do a six-year. And trans health providers are very much outsiders in the medical mm -hmm. community. And one of the things that that gives you when you're an outsider is that you don't have to follow all the rules, right? Because you're, even if you do, you're still discredited. People aren't, you know, yeah. considering you credentialed. And so there is a certain freedom to be like, well, let's op we're pushed outside of the system. Well, let's operate outside mm -hmm. of the system. And yeah, and things like trans health, that often means people's doctors are actually having conversations right. with them. And even in a practice where that's not possible with the doctor, it's set up well with the intake staff and with everybody else's that's the support staff there. So I mean, it's, and it, it, this is changing, you know, we'll see menopause information has like, waves almost like feminism has waves it's it's kind of very every generation for like at least the last hundred years every time that you're in kind of a boom of things and that's the case right now people will say no one has ever talked about this before <laughs> now right and i'm like but yes they have right like i mean indifferently we all talk about it differently and some of it is what sarah said which is that we think that no one's talked about it before now because in our family when people were older than us, or even in our community, when no one talked to us about it, we thought, well, no one's talking. And that might be true, but also those people might have been talking to each other. Right. <laughs> right, right. Maybe and not that's to us, how Stitch and Bitch was. Or tried up. to talk to their doctor, right? And had their doctor just be like, Mur, or just throw a systemic estrogen at yeah. them and send them packing. And, and that's how it is. You know, you have someone who goes to their doctor, and if they're a person that is this capable of, of uh, going through menopause, if the doctor has no answers, you know, how can they know what is, you know, what, what's a concern or a question that, that, I mean, if you, if you have no one, if you say to someone, you know, this is happening to me and they can, and the doctor can't say, oh, you're probably going through starting menopause or something. I mean, how, what are some signs or some things that. That it's happening. Do you mean like, what are some symptoms to look out for? Well, or yeah. What, what have you found in people you've talked to? What is a common hurdle? in terms of starting to, when they're starting to experience menopause? I mean, I think that we have this, we have a cultural idea of what the symptoms of menopause or perimenopause are, right? Hot flashes, changes in the sexual anatomy that you may or may not even notice. And I think that outside of that, there's so many more small little things that can be happening. Oh, crankiness, that's definitely one. And I think that there's so many other little things that can be happening that people aren't going to notice are is part of this evolution in someone's body. And so I think one, if you're not getting good answers, I think obviously there's resources out there. This is a really good book called What Fresh Hell Is This? <laughs> <laughs> that Heather wrote that's just like chock full of information. And it's written, I think, 
in a way that is, you know, very current to the times and the way that we're thinking. And it's very gender friendly. I think, you know, there's online resources and stuff like that too. But I think it's hard because, you know, when my doctor was dismissive, I was like, you know what? I need a new doctor. Like, this is just not going to work for me. Even though to be, not that anybody has, but like my whole journey through this was pretty much easy and nothing really happened. But, um, sorry. (laughs) It's like, I want it to happen. I want to be the one that gets to like do all these, you know, I don't have any knowledge that I really gained personally to help anybody. Sorry. I'm sorry. But can you strike? I never said this. I know no one's ever even like also given me a hard time about having a queer kid with another queer person. It's been, it's just really hard to grow up here. Everything's (laughs) easy for me. Nothing's ever hard for me. Anyways, but I think there is so much more out there now that's more written or discussed amongst people who are going through this than there, I'm sure there was 20 years ago, right? Like you had your friends, maybe you talked about it or maybe you got some information from your doctor, but I think there are a lot more resources out there now than there used to be. And I think sometimes with like a lot of things with healthcare now, you just have to kind of, I mean, Right. It's like you want to walk that line between going to WebMD and diagnosing yourself with some, you know, fatal disease because you have a perimenopause symptom, which is the kind of thing I would do. But also, yeah, just finding the resources out there that are going to help you at least navigate what's going on to the point where you might be able to then take that back. Listen to me. Go back to your doctor. Say, listen, I, I have this thing happening. Can you please help me figure out what that is or help me with it or something? I mean, I imagine there's the, in what you've established, there's the fear and even asking the question to start because, you know, of all the misconceptions and what you think you can expect to happen. And, and-, and to being dismissed. I mean, that's, I think, a lot of people who, you know, have uteruses, have experienced that in so many ways. Not that people with penises have never been dismissed by medical professionals, but like, why ask this question if I'm just going to have someone brush it off as not being a big deal and then make me feel like I'm hysterical for having a reaction or wanting to know what's going on with my body. And I think that's really stops people from even asking those questions a Mm -hmm. lot of the time. Well, and I think too, like it's a, I mean, to me where the bar is, if, if I, if you were to go, if you were to take an adolescent to a doctor and say, my adolescent is going through puberty. And the doctor said, I know nothing about that. You would be like, how did you even get out of medical school? Because puberty is like a 10 year plus life phase. And that is the exact same true thing about perimenopause. And then after perimenopause, it's the rest of your life you are in menopause. So this is then deck. I mean, it's not, people have this idea even that peri is like a couple of years. It's the average is 10 years. It's 10 years that you're in the transition between being premenopausal and being postmenopausal for a doctor not to know about something with, I mean, I don't, I even say impacts instead of symptoms because it's not Mm. a disease and it's not an illness. It's a life phase, you know, but for somebody not to know about something, we, we have a list. It's like the known list of 35 plus identified impacts of perimenopause. But for a doctor not to know about 35 plus different things that could be happening to multiple systems of your body over 10 years, if I have that, I'm like, if you have any choice in seeing your doctor, that doctor to me is just fired, period. You're done. Like we're done here. You're not even my regular doctor, right? Like that this, why are you even treating me at this age in this embodiment if you don't 
care to know anything about this because continuing education credits are things that doctors need to be doing. Yeah. So some of that is is fi- you're fired. You're right. fired. And I, I mean, quite frankly, I think, you know, I grew up in and out of public health. The likelihood, quite frankly, of public health providers, and that's where you usually don't have as much choice mm-hmm. as a doctor, not knowing anything about this is private, is not public health care providers are going to know more about this. Mm. Also, because people who generally have a harder time when it comes to how this goes are people first are black and brown people are people who have uh, lived in trauma are people who have high stress levels so you know you're cleaning houses you're you know living in poverty all these things right this is they're going to be seeing more people in a public health practice who are having a harder time they're going to be more used to it than somebody who's in a private practice. But yeah, I the, the doctor's fired. The doctor's yeah. fired. Who doesn't know who doesn't know anything about this? But you're right, right? Like there are resources. Some of it too, maybe it goes back to what we're talking about with parents talking to kids. You you brave the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, go ahead. Try and talk to about it with your friends. Because at this stage of the game, maybe out of one out of every three or four people that pretty much anybody talks to he's in this age group one of their friends is going to be like you need this book this book Mm -hmm. you need to go to this website there's this web support group like it's not you're not going to have to talk to too many people right now to find somebody and it's it may or may not be your doctor. I gotta be honest probably won't be your doctor who's going to hook you up to the good stuff yeah maybe it's your online teen sex resource running person or your or feminist your friendly sex neighborhood shop. sex shop owner. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Exactly. Well, and you know, that's the, it's Sarah. I love that. And I love just been, you know, when, as I've become more familiar with early to bed and the work that you do, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that my, my local sex shop would be the place that I would go to get advice or that it would be a place you could go to talk to you know you don't necessarily think the experts work here but of course it's the place it's the there's a reason that you're you run this business too i ask especially you know it can be hard to fire your doctor too if you've been going to someone for a long time or depending on you know um just how yeah how long you've been with them it can be difficult to fire your doctor so i guess uh, i'm curious what suggestions you would have you know you've talked about getting some books or trying to talk to you know friends if you think they might help but a good first step resource to set yourself on the right path. Like, I mean, here's the thing, like even you don't, by and large, again, if you, I mean, I think if we, so many of us have blocked out our experience of puberty and adolescence, because in some way it is traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. But if we can drag ourselves back there and revisit it and think about what we didn't have that we needed, right? By and large, for most of us, the answer would be that we didn't have support and that we didn't understand to center ourselves in our care. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that like whether or not you you get or have access to hormone therapy, whether or not you get or have access to doctors, you can do things like recognize that when you're feeling more tired, you need to get more sleep. And when you're feeling more stressed, you need to release some of the stressors. And when you're feeling like you can't do the things you need to do to take care of yourself because everybody's asking you, is, is expecting you to do everything for them, you need to start cutting them up, right? And be like, guess what? It's time for you to do for yourself now, right? Like these things, so much of getting through 
this period of time well is less about what stuff you have, you know, what books you have access to, and more about like, can you just recognize that your body is doing different things and needing different things than it did before and you answer it, right? And some of this is like, I often say to people that, you know, kind of everything I already knew from a disability justice perspective was like exactly what I needed to know walking into this, right? And so it's things like also learning and teaching ourselves to have no shame when we ask for an accommodation. Mm -hmm. And when our bodies are changing to not demonize our bodies about it, but to be like our bodies have always been changing. They've been changing since before we were born. They will never stop changing even after we die, right? (laughs) Unless we are cremated, we will still be changing. This body will still be changing. So, I mean, I think a lot of that is just when things feel wrong, I think there's a, there's an idea that like, okay, we'll go read this book and then we'll go get this pill and then everything's going to feel fine. And look, as a chronically ill person, I always call medications, they're like magic beans. You know, I always feel like I've sold the cow for the magic (laughs) beans and more times than not, I just have the magic beans, right? Right, Because they're almost never going to meet your expectations. But in this case, so much of it, so much of it is just self-care. Well, and I think that's such an amazing point because- I think it has been so medicalized, mm-hmm. right? And I think about my mom's generation and yeah, like just take this hormone, whatever. And I think we still look for that for so many things like vaginal dryness, take this pill or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, or you could just buy some lube. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, we're, the thing that is missing from so much of this isn't trying to just get rid of whatever the symptom is or whatever um, the, mm-hmm. the combination impact. <laughs> impact is, but to use this as an opportunity to try more to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think because it's menopause is something and perimenopause is something that happens to, you know, it's like, it's not a chronic illness. It's mm-hmm. not something that people are very easy to dismiss it. Well, it happens to everyone. So I don't need to take extra special right. care of myself because that's weak or, right. you know, like my mom didn't do that or my friends aren't, you know, whatever. And I think that that's such a good way to look at it. Is that like, maybe I have this thing that's happening that there's not a pill for, but I could take a nap, you know, yeah. and that would make me feel better in this moment. And I, I think that we need to talk about that more too and, and practice that more and not feel shame. Yeah. That is shame is a great way to keep people miserable. It's true. Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was the pill is not a magic pill. There's no magic pill. What the right. pill does is put you in a functional position where you can focus and work on the aspects of your health, on the, on the aspects of your health. And this is serious. I mean, that's the other thing. It's uh, that, you know, there's always a lot of menopause puberty comparisons, but like in a really, really serious way, things that we know adolescents are at incredible risk of, right? Committing suicide, eating disorders, Mm. um, depression, domestic violence. You know what the second group is for all of those things are people in perimenopause. Mm. And so that's also one of the things where like, you know, I don't mean mean to be fascist about it with a doctor, but a lot of people don't live through this. And it's not because it's killing them. It's because it's not taken seriously. And it's because people don't say things like, oh, shoot, if you're... 47 and you're deeply depressed, I need to be very worried about you, 
right? Like I need to, and if I don't know how to treat you, I should not just be saying, well, I don't know. Right. I need to be like, no, this is really serious because I know that for people in this age group, they are at risk of these very, very serious things. And I know from living in the world, the people in this age group are largely unsupported in so many things. Heather, I want to move on to another quote from the emails you sent me because I I love this quote. You have in there, uh, we often have folks convinced that once they're heading towards menopause, their sexual lives are going to go downhill, when in fact, based on plenty of study, we know this to be entirely untrue, and that for people in their 50s and beyond, they are literally having the best sex of their lives. And you've um, we've touched a little bit on adjustments that you might make for a healthier life, and we've touched a little bit on, on your sexual life before and after, but besides hormonal, you know, I know these changes, as you said, have a significant impact on your sexual life. And I know you both have advice for making those adjustments between your pre and post menopausal days. And Sarah, I know even just speaking with you early to bed, this is exactly the sort of thing that going to early to bed or your local sex store can be very much help with. You you commented on talking toys and lube, and I'd love to hear from you a little bit about that, especially you know, if you're having the best sex of your life in your 50s, too. <laughs> right, or you want to have the best sex of your life. You know, and I think that there's some universality here is that as we age, kind of wherever we are, gender, body, you know, bi- biology, all those things, our bodies are going to change no matter what. And I think also, if you're in a relationship for a long time or whatever it is, you might need to or want to add something to that relationship that wasn't there before, whether it's out of necessity or just desire or whatever. And I think that going into a sex toy store, accessing either sex toys or even something as simple as lube, you're already interrupting what might have been a very sort of rote situation or whatever you have been doing for a long time and you're, and you're adding this element of newness which can be great, whatever age you are, of course. But I think especially as you get older, like the idea that, well, you know, maybe it hurts my back to do what I used to do, or maybe my knees don't work for that, or it doesn't have to just be this like sort of hormonal or whatever thing happening. But when you start to do things like open your mind to adding a sex toy or positioning it or lube into it, you're like, I feel like you're breaking something in a really good way in your brain that allows you maybe to be more open to new types of sensations, to new types of sexuality. And I think that can snowball in a way that can kind of really create a whole new dynamic and we do see a lot of folks who are older who are trying things for the new time for the first time or who are getting out of their long-term relationships that weren't working for them or who i mean we've had lots of people who are a physician sends them to us to get a vibrator because they're like you don't have a partner you shouldn't you know it shouldn't stop using your sexual or using your sexuality sounds a little (laughs) (laughs) um i have one woman who was i think in her 80s who many years ago was sent to us by her doctor who said if if you don't use it it'll break or something like that and i was like that's not really true (laughs) like you got it for a vibrator use it or lose it use it or lose it yes they will tell you what? Well, <laughs> uh, let me, I'll like, which does, I think, I think it kind of goes back to penetrative sex or whatever, but it's also, it's always really reassuring for me or exciting when you have somebody who like hadn't thought to come to early to bed, mm. but a friend or in some cases, a healthcare provider or a therapist or something's like, go get something fun for you to try. And it can open these floodgates and it can also be like, mm, okay, yeah, that was fine. But, um, it's almost like, 
just because sex has been working for you for a long time doesn't mean there's not something out there that you're not trying. And yeah. if it hasn't been working for you, then there's definitely things out there that you can be trying. Even if it's not a sex toy, but a resource, a book, mm-hmm. something that encourages you to explore sexuality beyond your genitals. You know, there's like so many other ways that you can do things. Yeah, I think that, I mean, and it looks, a lot of our life experience will be that when change happens, change equals loss. Right? Yes. That's just real. That's part, that's part yeah. of how change, but also in other cases, change can equal opportunity, right? Change can present opportunities for itself. Again, when you, when you need to be like, I have to make an accommodation that, that opens things up for you to all of a sudden consider things that you might not have considered before when you didn't have to make an accommodation. Like it's no shame on anybody that uses Viagra or anything like that. But I also think that that's a good example, right? So when the way that people's penises work starts to change, you can do that again, no, no shade, not that that's a problem. I'm, I'm here for pills too, but you also have other options or options that can go with that. Because another thing you can do is make it so your sex life isn't so dependent on mm-hmm. having an erect penis mm-hmm. and in doing that that doesn't have to be this like want want that can be this like oh my god there were all of these other things that i actually like and could be doing that i didn't even know or that i only thought of as the things that i need to do enough to do that yep. other thing mm-hmm. right like and when all of a sudden you and it's also one of these things where you know that kind of sex that we're talking about like really heteronormative penis and vagina intercourse if that is the center of everything if all of a sudden you take that away as the center, you can move the center, there can be no center at all, the whole circle can widen, like it's, you know, it's all of what Sarah's talking about is I think that we, and again, change can be lost. So it's not like we're wrong to feel like, oh, no, things are changing, I'm gonna lose things. And maybe we still are. But also in all of that, we we can gain things all the time. And when we have to make accommodations, again, this is kind of the beauty. It's like what I think of as the, the creativity of disability justice, right? When we have to make accommodations, we have to have new ideas. Well, and I think just one thing that comes to mind for me when we're talking about, you know, adding something in, I think for a lot of people, the idea of toys has this very specific, you know, sort of categorized or group or mentality of toys equals I mean I don't know if it would be kinky or fetish or something but it, it, it that it's not that it's an unusual thing but it's it's not something you should need for sex or yeah not if you have a partner I mean oh, and the peop- there's so many misconceptions that well one you know you have the what sex toys how sex toys often show up in culture historically have been exaggerated and goofy and as the butt of a joke or the sign of depression, not depression, but like Mm -hmm. patheticness. And I think, and we see this all the time, you know, oh, I don't need that. I have a boyfriend or I, I would never need lube or you just like these, these like judgments people are making when it's like, it's not about, you know, it's not shameful to want something that provides a sensation that no human can provide. Right. Right. And it doesn't, and I think, again, it's changed a lot in the last 20 years. I think it's, I mean, they sell this stuff at Target now, but you should really go to an independent sex store. <laughs> Shop local. Because you're not going to want to ask the pharmacist about that. But um, I think that there is, the, there, of course, there's this stigma. And I think a lot of times when people walk into a store like Early to Bed, they're like, oh, this is cute. This is beautiful. This is pretty. I didn't ever know you could put something in that part of your body. Oh, it's okay. Oh, wait, there's 
normal looking people over there looking at that thing. I guess it's okay to like, look at that thing. The people who work here are not scary. You know, like it's this, I think once people get through the front door, a lot of times there's this like, oh, this isn't what I'm picturing or what, you know, there's not a creepy guy in the corner with a trench coat and his hands in a weird place. Like it's, I think it is just different. And I think for some people it takes like someone else suggesting it or someone else bringing you there consensually, hopefully. That's what we really try to make sure is happening. It's Um, funny too that you're talking about the thing where people are like, I don't need that. It reminds me of like, like the yogurt store, right? So like the mm-hmm, yogurt store, mm-hmm. we'll see each other. Can you imagine somebody walking into the frozen yogurt store, right? So there's this, the little bit of yogurt, and then there's all this stuff. And they're like, I don't need that stuff on my yeah. yogurt, <laughs> right? But you're like, but well, I you want don't it. need it. <laughs> but you're like, well, you could have as whatever you want on it. Why wouldn't you want to be like, maybe I want this oh. over here, right? Like, but that is how people will come to this. And where it's like, somebody makes you a cake and you're like, I need frosting, <laughs> right? right? That you're like, no, you don't, but do you want it's it? the best part. Right? Like, I mean, just, it's one but of it, these things where it's like, why, what is this? What is this thing? And then, and it's so antithetical. Pleasure is not about needs, right? Like pleasure no. is about wants, you know? And that's the thing is it's like, this is the, the want is the center thing. The need is the thing that you need to be healthy and to feel safe yeah. and all of these other things. But that's the need stuff. The want stuff like is just. Well, and I think it kind of goes full circle back to misogyny oh, and, yeah, for sure. you know, patriarchy and that especially those of us, you know, who were assigned female at birth, like accessing sexual pleasure brings back this fear of men in our culture being unnecessary. I mean, of course, this is very reductive, but sure. like, and I think in, in that, I think we're still, we are just chipping away at that a little bit. Like just because someone has pleasure doesn't mean they don't need a, another human right. in the room. Right. You know, like right. if your vibrator does everything your partner does, then your partner sucks, right? Because vibrators are, they don't help with the they dishes. They only bring so much talking to you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just They stopped making that talking one a long time ago. Right, so there's like, you know, it is, it's, if you're worried about being replaced by a sex toy, then you should worry about what kind of human you that are. That is the truth. You know? And your relationship. Your it's relationship. true. It's true. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, it's so, yeah, I think that it's, it's good to, to come at it with an open mind and a, a knowledge that pleasure is, it may not be necessary, but it's definitely something that we all should have access to and explore as much as we can. Right. I want to, I want to touch a little bit more on, on lube too, just because in the email, Heather, that you sent, uh, you know, with the notes of what to talk about, lube was lube. capitalized four or five <laughs> times. And so it seems like, and you've mentioned it a few times in the recording. Sure. So it seems like something, I mean, you know, as far I as. I never stop talking about it. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, as far as, you know, for, uh, I mean, a lot of people, including myself, the idea was that lube is for one very specific thing yep. and, and that's all it does. And that's what it's for. So, I mean, you've, you've. You've talked, you've mentioned already a number of times, clearly it's important. So I'd love to hear why and more about that. I mean, look, like none of our bodies, uh, bodies get dry. It's just a thing. And the older you get, in (laughs) fact, like it is a, it is a thing. You were like slowly turning into those like corn husk apple people, right? Like, I mean, that's just, but it is is what's happening, right? Like we have to hydrate a little bit differently. We have to 
change oh. whatever humectants lotion. we're putting on our I've skin. I've never needed lotion. Right, like, like all these things. Even also, too, one of the things that changes that can be an issue for people post-menopause is how much uh, you salivate. Their mouth even gets mm-hmm. drier, right? Like it's just it's just what happens, yeah. right? It's one of these things that happens. But but it is the thing where you know this. I don't know that that's one of like you were saying earlier, Sarah. I can't believe that we still have to have the lube conversations yeah. that we have to have. Like I just I don't. I don't understand. Like I have lip balm everywhere. I didn't have it today and it's driving me crazy. Um, and there's a lot of people that way, right? That also like <laughs> these lips and these lips, not that different. Right. And it's one of these things that but like, don't put lip balm on your vulva. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. 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 Different. Sorry. Yeah. Need to clarify that before the we anatomy, go on. The anatomy and the needs of the anatomy are not that different. But, but again, it's one of those things where nobody's going to get snotty and weird about needing lip right, balm. Lip balm. Right. Right. Or, or a be glass like, of or water. Think like I'm less of a person. Right. right. Because I need water or lip balm. You're not like, it's just, again, this is just. It's just, it's, and and some of it is, I think it's one of these things where an interesting thing sometimes happens when people who have kind of all of this built in shame and other things about it, use it and have a good experience. And more times than not, it's just kind of like, right? Their brain kind of goes, but sometimes you can have people that have all of that shame and I'll talk to them and I can tell that they've used it and they've had a good experience, but that script that they have internalized it, they'll be like, no, it, you know what my partner said? It was too wet then, or I just, yeah. just felt messy or whatever. And then, you know, you will have a conversation to be like, first of all, whatever amount feels right to you is fine, but mm-hmm. maybe consider, listen to yourself mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Listen to how much you're pushing in on not wanting to have this thing. That's just a thing, right? Like it's right. just some silicone or some glycerin. Like it's not yeah. the Satan you know, <laughs> well, I mean, okay. I definitely. Oh, that's a, would be an interesting lube lube brand. Yeah, I was about to <laughs> like say. Devil. But I think I think like there's two things I wanted to point out. One is that we do like I think a lot of people liken quote unquote needing lube to like erectile dysfunction, yes. right? So being in a moist position. Ew, so sorry. <laughs> being in that position is like that's how you know someone with a vagina is ready for sex, right? So if they're not right in that position, they don't want it. They're not hot, hot right. enough, you know, whatever right. it is. And right. so I think the, you have that whole thing. And then I also think you have this history of lubricants not being made in a way that's thinking about comfort, right? Yes. So even if you have, so I've talked to people who have like, I tried it once and it was irritating. And I'm like, well, did you try some of the, you know, garbage filled lubes. lubes that are not, Sure, they pass the FDA test for like safety, but they don't pass a user test for comfort. And I think that it wasn't until, you know, there are a lot more feminist sex toy stores and people getting people who had vaginas actually being involved in the making and selling of these things that we started to see things being produced that actually are feel good on the body and don't cause irritation. And everybody's body's different, right? So I can say this is really irritant free and someone else could be like, well, it bothered me. But Oh, that you even have those choices, though. Like right. when I'm talking about us doing content review, all of our earlier stuff. And again, this is just 25 years or less. KY. Or Astroglide. And the, because those were the that choices. Was it. Yeah. 
right? And that's not even 25 years ago that those were the choices. And I think that, and I think that, you know, we have lots of people who are just like, well, I tried it once. I didn't like it. I'm not going to try it again. And I mean, that was part of my own evolution, you know, to realize that there were things that were irritating my body and it wasn't the concept of lube. It was the crap I was buying at the Mm -hmm. drugstore, you know? And so I think we have to be open to trying other things. And that's why I also really like, you know, the ability to go somewhere, touch things, feel them, buy sample packs. And you need to make sure that people know that, right? Like that's the other thing. If you go into a feminist sex toy store, you're not, it's not a target where you can't even take the bottle out (laughs) of the box. Like people are going to have sample packs and let you feel things on your fingers. Smell them, taste them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All those things. But yeah, I think it's it's the kind of thing that I wish every single human who is having sexual activity with themselves or somebody else should have or get used to using a lube because whether you need it today or tomorrow, you're going to want it. It's going to make things feel mm-hmm. better. And nobody, I mean, the fact that people with vaginas historically and continue to suffer through penetration. I'm sorry, I know you don't like that word. I don't know. Um, With someone they like and consensually, all those things that doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And that that is thought of as being normal. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. And that we don't, and again, if it was, if if it hurt a penis to go in a vagina, it would be be something that you get. yeah, Yeah. It comes with your groceries. You know, like it would be something that was handed out on street corners. And so I think that it is, there's this expectation that we're just supposed to get used to it. And if, you know, everyone can just get comfortable with it and talk about it with your friends and make sure you have it for your lover who's coming over, whether or not, you know, you've used it before. I think it's yeah. a really good normalize it, normalize loop. Oh, I got to get that sticker made now. Okay. So normalize, yeah, normalize loop. loop. I love that one. Well, and I will say, you know, having been in early to bed, it's such a comforting place to go in. And you you were talking about going in there and you see normal people in there. I mean, <laughs> I love seeing people walk in as if they're walking into their bookstore right. or- Not in a raincoat and no, a wig. Not a, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, raincoat. You're allowed to wear raincoats. <laughs> but yeah, early to bed is definitely one of those places where I think honestly early to bed was one of the first sex shops I'd ever been in. And I, I had this idea of, of what a sex shop was. And I walked in, I was like, this feels completely different. And these people and the people that are here are answering my questions and I'm not afraid to ask them. So well, then we've done our job. <laughs> so no, but I, I, I definitely, you know, the difference between going there and going to Target where they have to unlock the lube mm-hmm. container for you. And uh, I still uh, remember in college, having to go to the like off the highway mm, yes. sex shops for lube, which was a, like earnestly, yeah. almost sexually violent yeah. situation, right? That you had to be like, oh God, yeah. I'm going to go in this place looking like a 19 year old, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm going to ask some guy because there's going to be some guy and he's going to be eating real nachos. freaking weird about yeah. it. Eating nachos. Yeah, I have one experience in a sex shop with someone eating nachos and now that's my entire story. <laughs> eating nachos? <laughs> All other sex shops are staffed by men eating nachos who don't want to tell you anything about the vibrators they sell. This is one of the rare experiences where I don't want to be eating nachos. No, it's not the place for nachos. Yeah. Before we sign off here, I always like to ask our guests, you know, 
one, where can people find you? You know, any information, you know, socials, address, website, uh, resources, any information. And Heather, I know you have these organizations that you work with as well. So um, if uh, where where can people look for you and uh, maybe even engage with Scarlet Teen or our bodies ourselves? Sure. All of these places are online. I have a homepage at heathercorinna.com that kind of connects all of those dots. If somebody wants like, you know, one stop. Heather Corinna shopping, scarletine.com. I mean, we have a bunch of different direct services so people can contact us in a whole bunch of different ways. And again, even though, you know, we center young people and what we do, we run a whole bunch of different direct services. We have a text line, we have a message board, we have a live chat and parents are absolutely welcome to come in and use those resources for themselves. We are always happy to help parents do as good a job with this as they want to be doing. But um, yeah, we're also at Scarletine. We are, you know, like Sarah talked about earlier with kind of when you're a sex toy shop getting funding, we are, Mm. it is very hard for us to get funded. It's really hard for us to pay all of our bills because it's one of these things where people get really weird Mm -hmm. about giving you money when it comes to sex and sexuality. And then once young people are involved, it's like, oh God. And so we run mostly on independent donations. So we need them. Yeah. And the library, things of mine can be found. Um, at the library. I'll put um, <laughs> I'll put links to all of the the websites and the organizations in the bio for the episode as cool. well. Make it easy for people to to find those. Sarah, where can you, <laughs> uh, can you where to found? find you? You know, uh, well, early to bed is located in the adorable Andersonville neighborhood. <laughs> We're at fifty one thirty eight North Clark Street, so just half a block south of Foster. Uh, we of course have a website earlytobed.com with the number two as our website, and then we have a very cute Instagram. Oh, it is so cute. On Instagram. I was like, they could find us on Instagram at Instagram. If you just search for early to bed, we usually come up. Although maybe, I don't know, maybe we're shadow banned today. So early, the number two bed dot shop now. Yeah. And you can check out our website for information on events and stuff like that. We're just getting back into that post pandemic. We don't have anything scheduled right now. We did a couple of things in the fall and hopefully we'll start doing some programming again in the spring. Well, and I would also like to add that Early to Bed is once again this year nominated for Best oh. of in Chicago at the yeah. Chicago Reader for Best Sex Shop. <laughs> so congratulations, Sarah. You. I have placed my votes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, well, great. You know, Heather, Sarah, this is this has been great. This is exactly what I was, you know, I was hoping to talk about and all this great information. And, and uh, you know, if anyone listening, uh, I'll link the resources uh, for the websites and everything. Um, but... I think you've given people a lot of uh, a lot of resources and a lot of avenues and gateways to start in, uh, engaging with their own sexual health as well. So thank you very much for being here with me today. Thank you thank for you. having us. Oh, sorry, <laughs> yeah, you we did it again. Wait, wait. Okay, let's try. Three, two, one. Thank you. Thank for you for having, having us. us. <laughs> it's been delightful. Thank you. <laughs>